And let's take our Bibles and turn them to the passage, turn in them to the passage that uh, Andrew read for us. Daniel chapter 5. So I want to invite you again this morning, not just to open your Bibles here, but I want to invite you into chapter 5. And specifically, I want to invite you into this banquet hall in which this uh, party took place when God showed up and spoke powerfully to this ancient king. And before we start, just to say a couple of things about what is happening here uh, by way of general observation. We need to see that in chapter 5, there's actually a connection to what came before it in chapter 4. Go back to chapter 4, the last verse, verse 37. The words of Nebuchadnezzar, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This, this, is, this is the hinge verse, and it connects chapter 4 to chapter 5, because in chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter about how God humbled him. Now in chapter 5, we're going to see how God humbled his grandson, Belshazzar. Not only is there a connection, but there's a contrast that is taking place. Daniel, through the Spirit of God, wants to show us that the differences or the similarities, perhaps, between King Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. He's contrasting not just the individuals and the makeup of their lives, but he's contrasting the different response to the Word of God in these two kings. Now, please also understand that this story actually leaps ahead. It leaps ahead approximately 23 years from what happened in chapter 4. 23 years from Nebuchadnezzar's final days, 23 years into the future, to the final days of the Babylonian Empire. The last verse of chapter 5 makes that very, very clear when we read here that Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the invasion of the Medo-Persians. Also keep in mind that this is 70 years after the Jews were taken into captivity. So the book of Daniel begins with Daniel as a teenager, and by the time you get to chapter 5, Daniel is now over 80 years of age. What is described in this passage is a historic moment, and historians can actually date it, and according to the calendar that we use, this happened on October the 11th, 539 years before Christ. We're going to do exactly what we've done in the last couple of weeks. We're going to look at the passage. What does the passage tell us? Then we're going to learn from the passage what does this passage, this story, teach us? So number one, what does the story of chapter 5 tell us? Well, first of all, Belshazzar is introduced to us in verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. So immediately we ask, who is he? And we might assume immediately that he is the direct son of King Nebuchadnezzar because it actually says this in the passage, and 
uh, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as his father. But we're going to see that that's not actually the case. The Bible doesn't lie, but we're going to understand what this means. First of all, let's look at his name. His name, Belshazzar, means Bel, that is the, the Babylonian god Bel, or Marduk, as he's sometimes called. Bel will protect the king. That was the name that was given to him. Now you'll remember that Daniel was also given a name, and the name that he received as a teenager in an attempt to assimilate him into Babylonian culture was Belteshazzar. Sounds very similar. Belteshazzar, however, means Bel protects his life. Belshazzar, Bel will protect the king. Belteshazzar, Bel protects his life. The similarity here is striking. The next thing I want to point out is that in the past, some have believed that this is just simply a make-believe story that was inserted into the prophet Daniel, by the prophet Daniel or by someone else at a future day. And they say that because there is no historical record. There's no historical verification of a man by the name of Belshazzar who reigned over the Babylonian people. But in 1854, all of this make-believe stuff and this speculation and criticism against the Bible came to an end when they discovered in the ruins of Babylon itself the, what they refer to as the Nabonidus cylinders. These were uh, rounded stones, and inscribed on the stones is a letter. And in the letter, there is a reference to Belshazzar as the firstborn son of Nabonidus. So again, archaeology proving the Bible to be historically accurate. After Nebuchadnezzar died, there were two men who succeeded him, and they only lasted for a very short period of time until a man named Nabonidus actually took control of the, ba the Babylonian throne. Nabonidus had married the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And in terms of his son, Bel Belshazzar, he made his son the co-regent of the nation or of the, em the empire. So Belshazzar was the maternal grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Hence, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as his father in the generic sense as we talk about our ancestors, our fathers. Now, that's the introduction that is given to him here. We're going to see more about him later in chapter 7. The next thing we see is that Belshazzar throws a party in verses 1 through 4. And it's strange in one sense that this party is taking place uh, because the city is under siege. The Persian armies are at the gates of the city. They've actually surrounded the city from the north and from the south. Some have looked at this and suggested that Belshazzar may have been ignorant of the fact that the Persian armies were right there. But the historical records prove that this is not the case. Belshazzar knew exactly what was happening outside of the city. And here he is. What is he doing? He's taking refuge in alcohol. He may have believed the, pro the propaganda of his own propaganda ministers that Babylon was an impenetrable fortress, but he is aware that there is a storm gathering outside the gates. So what is this party all about, and why throw a party at this point in time? Daniel wants, to, wants us to see several things. First of all, this party reveals the emptiness of Belshazzar's life. Nebuchadnezzar was known as a great military leader. He 
conquered many nations. His leadership was outstanding. He had great organizational and administrative skills. He built an amazing city. Belshazzar, all he can do is throw a party. One man built an empire, the other planned a party. The emptiness of this man's life. Daniel also wants, to see, wants us to see the blasphemy of his actions. He takes, it says in verses 1 through 4, these goblets which were like a chalice or, and even larger so, almost like a bowl which had been used in the temple in Jerusalem, which Nebuchadnezzar had seized when the Babylonians had invaded the city 70 years before, invaded Jerusalem 70 years before. Now he goes and he gets these, these goblets, these bowls retrieved, and he uses them as cups in which the people in the party can drink wine to the, Bab- the Babylonian gods. Now, please keep in mind that this was not a mindless act because he was inebriated. This was not some intoxicated whim. He knew exactly where the vessels were. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar had seized them in the past. He, went, he, he made sure that they were found. He considered them to be magnificent in appearance. In his thinking, it's why keep these things in a museum to the glory of my grandfather, why not add these goblets to, to everything that's taking place to create an even greater sense of ambiance at my party? And the real reason why he did this was he knew that these vessels had been made for the glory of the God of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, had worshipped and honored that God, but he is telling us I reject this God. This was his public repudiation of the God of heaven. It was his deliberate attempt to defy the one true and living God and to undo the living God's influence in Babylon, which still exists, existed from the time of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Notice Daniel's words to him in verse 23. You have set up yourself against the Lord of heaven, You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold. Clearly, Daniel knew exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do. And the people at the party, the nobles, the thousand people that had gathered them, they knew as well, and they were just as committed in their rejection of Yahweh as as Belshazzar was. They joined into the festivities. The third thing Daniel wants us to see here is the worship of Babylon's gods, that Belshazzar was completely devoted to them. Verse 4 says, They praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This was a party that turned into a worship service. The ruins of Babylon have been found And adjacent to three large courtyards that were excavated is a massive wall 60 feet wide and 172 feet long. So keep that in mind that this may have been the wall within this banquet hall adjacent to the courtyard where everything would have happened. Imagine this magnificent wall then lined with all of the statues, all of the idols of the Babylonian gods as this time of worship takes place. 
We see the emptiness of his life. We see the blasphemy, the blasphemy of his actions. We see the worship of other gods. No doubt he was honoring his god, Bel. Bel, the one who protects the king. Was he making a statement at this point in time? We're not really sure, but perhaps he was. Bel will protect my life if I worship him. But notice verse 4. They are described as the gods of what? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This isn't the only time that redundant list of building materials is listed in the passage. Daniel does it again later. This is Daniel's way of pointing out to us that they are absolutely powerless gods. They are lifeless gods. He is magnifying in our reading of this passage how impotent these gods were and how absurd it is to trust in gods of silver, gold, or stone. The party now quickly degenerates with an abundance of alcohol, no doubt erotic dancers, loud music, revelry. It becomes an orgy of drunkenness and sensuality. The party is nothing more than sheer bravado. It is the last fling of a terrified ruler drowning his fears in wine. It is exposed as an act of foolishness, and nobody at the party was prepared for what happened next. The party is interrupted beginning at verse 5, and you know what happens. A hand appears, and the fingers of that hand begin to inscribe on this long 172-foot wall certain words. Belshazzar sees the hand. He is shaken to his core. No doubt everyone else saw it too. This was a moment of sheer terror. This is, a, this is like a 9-11 moment for us when we saw the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center implode and turn into dust. And notice what it says in verse 6. His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. This is the English translation of a text from the Aramaic language. This portion of Daniel was written in that language. It is the language that Jesus spoke, Aramaic. Now, our English Bible translates what happened to Belshazzar at this point and uses an expression which we are all familiar with, and that is, my knees knocked together and my legs gave way, which is simply translating what happened in a nice and respectable way translating what the Aramaic actually says. What this verse actually says is that Belshazzar became completely undone. The literal translation is his knots were loosened, which is referring to his bodily function. Belshazzar wet and soiled his pants. You didn't think that was in the Bible, did you? But there it is. Underscoring chapter 4, verse 37, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What humiliation. In front of all of his guests, God was bringing him down because God opposes the proud. And God, what God did, he did in an instant. 
This humiliation is couched in a phrase intended to produce laughter in those who read the text. Belshazzar wet and soiled his pants, and we read it and go, you've got to be kidding. It provokes laughter. God is, as it were, poking fun. Daniel is poking fun at this king. And this is the second time that Daniel has done this in his writing. You remember back in chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar sets up this 90-foot statue to his honor and glory and the worship of his, of his gods, and, and, and then the music comes and all the instruments join in, and, and what happens? There's this mindless, automatic, robotic thing that happens in human beings. They genuflect immediately in front of the image mindlessness. According to Daniel, this kind of behavior, the behavior that Belshazzar is engaging in, is open to ridicule. I like what George Schwab said, a commentator in this book. He said, Belshazzar sought power over Yahweh's bowels, but he could not, bowls, but he could not control his own bowels. Now the wise men are summoned, beginning at verse 7. They come into the room, the enchanters, astrologers, diviners, and Nebuchadnezzar offers them a reward. If you, if you can figure out what this inscription means, I'm going to make you the third highest ruler. And uh, in spite of the fact that they are promised all of this wealth and position, they are useless again, again. Then, beginning at verse 12, the queen comes in. She makes an entrance into the hall. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she says. Now, we, we, we immediately have to ask ourselves, well, who is this queen? It's certainly not one of Belshazzar's wives because they're already there in the banquet hall. There are two possibilities as to who this queen might be. She is either the widow of Nebuchadnezzar, his grandmother, Belshazzar's grandmother, or she is the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's mother. Now, we don't really know. And in one sense, it doesn't really matter because whether it's the grandmother or the mother, either of them would have had sufficient knowledge of Nebuchadnezzar's days to have known the influence of Daniel during that point in time. So I want you to note three things here. First of all, she reminded Belshazzar that Daniel existed. And we see that in verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, notice she repeats it, your father, the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. So it's clear now in this passage that, that uh, Daniel no longer occupies the position that he once did. He's no longer at the core of government matters. He has been demoted. He's been out of sight for a period of time. He's lost his prominence in the Babylonian court, but she knows he's alive and that he's able to read the inscription on the wall. But she's also implying here that Belshazzar should have done exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did, that he needed Daniel and he ought to turn to him. She's implying, in a sense, when she keeps repeating, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, she's implying to her son or to her grandson, if only you had been like your grandfather, 
If only you'd been like Nebuchadnezzar. And then she informed Belshazzar that Daniel could tell the meaning of mysteries and dreams. And we see this in verse 12. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Again, the pun is made. Again, fun is made of, of King Belshazzar because the phrase solve difficult problems means loosen knots. She's, I don't think she intended this in her words, but the way Daniel couches it in his record of what, of what happens should cause the reader to laugh again because she's basically saying he can solve your incontinence issues. And her intervention would have been a humiliation to him. His grandmother, his mother giving him advice, and he's the king. But her words as well, he can loosen your knots. Humiliation again. And so at the end of verse 12, she gives her exhortation to her son or to her grandson. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So the old prophet Daniel now, well over 80 years of age, is summoned into the presence of Belshazzar. And you will notice as you read the passage here that there is an animosity here that he has toward Daniel, and frankly, that Daniel has toward him. He refers to Dan Daniel as he comes into the room that you are one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah. He doesn't refer to him as a man who used to be an outstanding uh, counsel to his, grand his grandfather, just you're one of the exiles. You're just one of, those, one of those Jews. That's all you are. It's as though he were putting Daniel in his place. And he's placing some kind of a question mark over the abilities of Daniel. And in Daniel's response, you'll notice that Daniel omits the usual deferential politeness of the Babylonian court. And, and after Belshazzar says, I'll, I'll, I'll make you great, I'll put a gold chain around your neck, a purple robe on you, I'll make you the third highest official in the land, uh, Daniel, Daniel speaks bluntly to him in verse seven, 17. He says, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. You can keep your stuff, is what he says. There's no sympathy for this man. Daniel has nothing good to say concerning him. And why was this animosity there? What, what's, what's the difference between how, how Daniel spoke with such respect to Nebuchadnezzar, but he looks upon Belshazzar with such disdain? And the reason, of course, is that Daniel knew what Belshazzar had done. He didn't see the act. He wasn't in the room in the banquet hall at that point in time, but he didn't see the, the sacred vessels being used, but he had seen things before, and no doubt he knew something of the character of this man before this fatal day. He was not surprised at Belshazzar's actions. In, in verse 2, he says, you gave orders to retrieve these things. We don't know exactly where they were, perhaps some kind of a museum to Nebuchadnezzar's glory. We're not, we're not sure. But he, he, he knew, Daniel knew, you've seized these things, you've ordered them, and, and you, you had individuals bring them in here. And Daniel, as he entered the room, may have actually seen these vessels lying on the floor where they were dropped when the guests dropped them in shock of seeing the inscription on the wall, the hand and the figures that, fingers that put that inscription on that wall. Perhaps the Jews, if, if they were there, if there were other Jews who were servants at this party, they may have been the ones 
the ones who told Daniel what had actually happened. But notice, I think the most, the, the thing I want you to see here is verse six, six, 16. Verse 16, now I've heard that you're able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. Now, even Belshazzar is speaking about his incontinence issues. You see the humor that is being used here. Well, Daniel speaks to him, and the inscription is interpreted, beginning at verse 18. After Daniel rejects the gifts that Nebuchadnezzar offers him, He does two things. First of all, he delivers a message, and then he deciphers the words of the inscription on the wall. Now, the delivery of the message that Daniel brings to him is very, very important because beginning at verse 18, Daniel reviews for Belshazzar his heritage and his history. Beginning at verse 18. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty, greatness, glory, splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Now, why, why is he reviewing all this? Belshazzar already knew this. But, but notice Daniel's words in verse 18. God gave your father. God gave your father. The implication is that no similar glory has been given to Belshazzar. The point that he's making here is Nebuchadnezzar, humanly speaking, had something to be proud of. Yet God humbled him. But you, Belshazzar, you're you're not even close. You're not even close. You have more reasons to be humbled than your grandfather did. Verse 22, but you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You knew all this. He reminds him of his heritage because he has rejected what he has heard. He's rejected the fact that his grandfather bowed down before Israel's God. The light that came into this family, this royal dynasty, that light was rejected. And therefore, Belshazzar was in greater danger than his grandfather was because he had defied the living God. Notice what else he says. Go down to the last line of verse, verse 23. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Now, he also makes reference to this hand that Belshazzar saw. And then he says, in essence, he's saying, the same hand that you saw that has written the inscription on the wall is the same hand that holds your life and gives you breath. And then he deciphers what the inscription is. And it's all given for us here. The four words, mene, mene, tekel, parson. And then verse 26, we're given the meaning. Mene means God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel means... You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting, lacking. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes. 
and Persians. It goes something like this, numbered, 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 weighed, divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. You know what he's telling him? God's taking a look at your life, and it's worthless. You have been found wanting. I've weighed you in the balance of a scale. You lack you're not worthy. Can you imagine that just before, you're die, just before you die, that you are told that your life has no moral worth? Well, Belshazzar responds to this, and he gives to Daniel a reward. He clothes him in purple, verse 29. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler. An empty gesture, really, and one wonders if this was not done in mockery of Daniel, for we almost get a picture here of Jesus when he was robed by Pontius Pilate and had to stand there in shame. What happens next? Belshazzar is killed and Babylon falls. That very night, verse 30, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. What happened here, we know from history, was a brilliant military move. Almost no bloodshed except for Belshazzar's was actually uh, shed. Herodotus, the great Greek um, philosopher who I've mentioned a number of times, points this out in his writings. There are several other places where you can get this information from. But Darius the Mede, who was the leader of these armies, um, they had surrounded the city, but the city was so heavily fort, 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 fortified that they devised a way to get into the city. Remember, the Euphrates River ran through the center of the city. If you approached the city from land, you had an impenetrable wall. What he did was he went north of the city, and they diverted the waters of the Euphrates River into a marshland so that the waters the water level of the river went down, and when the soldiers were finally able to stand in the water and touch the bottom shallow enough, they went in by river, walking on the riverbed into the city and took the city in literally one night. One night. That night, as I pointed out to you, was October 11, 539. Babylon collapsed, and it joined the, lost, the list of all the nations that have forgotten God, underscoring again the words of the prophet Isaiah, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. A drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dusts on the scale. But there you have the story. Now, what does the story teach us? How is this relevant to us today? I think the first thing we need to say, and it comes through in the passage, in chapter 4, verse 39, or, or verse 37, underscores this. Those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. This underscores the truth again, as we saw last Sunday, that God opposes the proud. The story is all about humiliation. God is humbling this man. Nebuchadnezzar, he humbled in order that he might show grace. Belshazzar, he humbles in order that he might bring his punishment to him. And isn't it a mystery that some are humbled by God and find grace and others are humbled and are punished? It reminds us of the words of the Apostle Paul that he, in reference to himself and all of the other apostles, but certainly could be applied to all of us, that to some people, you and I, are the aroma of life. We come bringing the gospel and it brings them life, but to others we're the aroma of death. We bring the gospel and they reject the gospel. And ultimately, they are lost. There's hope here, though. 
that past rulers have been dealt with by God and that God can deal with present rulers as well. Secondly, this story tells us that God's, or teaches us that God's prophetic word is certain. It is certain. Remember the first dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He, 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 he saw this, this statue of a man, and the head was made out of gold, and the, the torso and the arms were made out of silver, and the, and the loins uh, and the lower part of the torso were made out of, out, of, out of bronze, and then the legs and the feet were made out of iron and clay. And Daniel interpreted that dream for him, and he said to him, he said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold, but after you, after the head, there's going to come the silver. And that's exactly what happens here because the Medo-Persian empire takes over, and they, as it were, are the silver part of the original dream that Nebuchadnezzar had seen. The head of gold falls, and it is crushed, and the silver torso follows. And in all of their cases, no matter what empire it is, remember in that dream there was the little rock that was cut out, but not by human hands. And that rock comes and smashes against the statue and brings the whole thing down. God's prophetic word is certain. And this will become more important to us, this truth, as we get into the latter part of Daniel, which deals with so much prophecy. God's prophetic word is certain. The third thing I think that this passage teaches us is that it shows us our ability to close our eyes to reality. This is a human fault, and all of us have it. Belshazzar completely ignores what is going on. He completely ignores the judgment that is about to fall, and doesn't that have some kind of a contemporary ring to it? That just as he partied well into the night, while outside our armies that would threaten his very life, so individuals, human beings, we, we, we actively suppress the truth about God. This truth about God that constantly bombards our senses every day. Isn't this what Paul writes about in Romans 1, that, 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 that we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness? That, that the attributes of God, the, the character of God, the, the power of God is clearly known because God has made it known. We see the stars in the sky at night. We, we, we walk along trails in our beautiful city and experience the wonders of God's creation and all of it shouts out to us. God is saying, I am here. I am the creator of all of this. I have given this in my love and grace to you. And in these things that you enjoy every day, I have revealed myself to you, my power and my glory. And then God in his grace places within our conscience this this God thinking. We understand that there is someone greater than us. We have this sense of what is morally right and morally wrong even before we read a law that is found in the Bible all a part of God's God's common grace to all of humanity. But we deliberately ignore what God has said. We deliberately go against our conscience. We deliberately uh, darken our own minds so that we blot out his glory that we see bombarding us every day from every angle. 
And just as Belshazzar used these sacred vessels, we take the things that belong to God and we use them to feed our own lusts and our own idolatries. And should we continue in this path, then our fate is as deserved is as deserved as it is certain. Belshazzar paints for us a, 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 a vivid picture of what the Bible calls the fool. The fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Not that God doesn't exist, but the fool who says in his heart, I'm going to live my life as though God does not exist. The practical atheist living as though God is not there. And in the end, Belshazzar can only hang on in life with the help of alcohol to blot out the stark realities that face him. He rejects his heritage. He rejects his history. He rejects the light of God that came to him through Daniel and through his grandfather. And as it says in Romans 1, when we consider all of this, what does Paul conclude about our state? He says, we are without excuse. We are without excuse. Nobody can stand in front of God on the last day and say, yeah, but God, I've got this excuse. I didn't really understand. I didn't know. How could I have known? No, you knew. God will say, because the heavens declare the, the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Every human life is being weighed. Every human life is in the balance of scales. And we are all without excuse. And we are all found wanting, lacking, because of the revelation that God has given to us. The fourth thing that this passage teaches us is that this passage, this story, actually gives us hope. It gives us hope. Now, in light of what I've just said, how could, I, how could I talk about hope? I mean, how can a story about the judgment of a man bring any hope at all? But friends, it does. I don't know how you feel, but, but does, isn't it a hopeful thing that God, God does judge? Believing that God is judge will, and, that, and is a judge and that he will address all of the injustices of our world that he will ultimately, in the end, set everything in the world right that is a very hopeful truth. Imagine that you lived in a world where evil was never punished, where justice was never administered, where crime and murder and rape and abuse went on unpunished. Who would want to live in such a world? But because you and I have been made in the image of God, we are actually hardwired for justice. There is a deep longing in all of our hearts to see justice done. This is why when we, we watch a movie, certain kinds of movies where, where the underdog, the person who's been abused, finally triumphs in the end, why it just sort of, in, that movie endears itself to us. When we read about what happened in the residential schools, how did we all feel? Justice needs to be done. This national day of truth and reconciliation it resonates with all of us because we are hardwired to see justice done hardwired because we believe that the world should be just and those who do evil should be punished which takes us i think to the next thing that this passage says or teaches us that this story points to a coming day of justice belshazzar's day was fixed 
October 11, 539 B.C., God had decreed it. And the Bible tells us that God has fixed the day when he will judge the world in righteousness. Fix the day. It cannot be altered. God is not mocked, the Bible says. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The Bible tells us it has been appointed to all of us to die once. After this, judgment. God is going to set the world right. And this gives us hope because it points to that day when justice will finally come. But let's just back up for a moment because if we believe this, if we believe that hope comes because justice is coming, if we believe hope is there because because God is going to judge the world in righteousness at a future date, then this should also cause every single one of us in this room today to shudder. Because our longing to see justice done raises a troubling question for all of us. What about my sins? What about my crimes? What about my wrongdoings? You see, our innate sense of justice should cause us to recognize God's justice is coming to me as well. My life has been weighed. Your life has been weighed. What do you think God's conclusion is about your life? Wanting. Lacking. Everyone. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if God will deal with us solely on the basis of his justice, then like Belshazzar, we are undone. And none of us have any hope. But there is hope. And I think this story points to this. It should remind us that there is also mercy. We demand justice. We want justice to be done. And when we say those words, we need to realize that justice must also be done to us. But what we need more than justice is mercy. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There, there is no one here righteous, the Bible says. Not even one. We are all, we've all been weighed and found want, wanting. But remember this, there is one person in history, only one, who was weighed on the scales and he was found not wanting. And that is Jesus in him was no sin. Pontius Pilate said, I've examined this man. I, I, find, I find no guilt in him. And the Bible refers to him as the righteous one. Jesus' life was, was weighed in the balance and it was found perfect. It was found complete. It was found to be sinless. His life satisfied fully the God, God's demands for holiness. And his death satisfied fully God's justice that sin will be punished. And this is why you and I need to turn toward him, to focus our eyes on him, to put our faith in him. We, we, we need, to, we need to, to look at that, at that place called Golgotha where, where God's justice, the cross, where God's justice was satisfied. God's justice against sin was satisfied in the death of his son when Jesus became a substitute for us. 
that cross where, where God's mercy was given to us and displayed to the whole world. In essence, justice and mercy came together at that point. They kissed each other. We need to look at the resurrection of Jesus and see that it is the seal that the wages of sin, which is death, has been paid by Jesus Christ and that God has honored him by raising him from the dead. We need to look forward to that day when Jesus will return because when he returns, he's going to bring those of us who have trusted in him to his bank- banquet table. And in place of Belshazzar's thousands of nobles, we will be there with all of the saints, thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And we will be there washed from our sins and clothed in robes of righteousness. At that banquet, there's going to be no place for pride, no place for toasting and boasting of who we are and what we think we are. Rather, we will all confess that we've received mercy and grace, and forever we will celebrate the justice and the mercy of God. So what about you? Where are your eyes fixed? Like, where's your heart going? On empty and meaningless parties and vain achievement in life, or is your heart fixed on Jesus? We need to look to him. We need to look to his death and his resurrection. We need to look at the coming day when he will make everything right and we will rejoice in his mercy forever. Please stand. Lord, as we continue now to worship you, we want to offer you our hearts. We want to say from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for your great mercy to us. Thank you that your justice was satisfied, that your mercy was revealed. Thank you that we have hope because of all that you have done for us in your death on the cross and your resurrection from the grave.